0: Heavenly Father, uh, we do love because you first loved us. So increase our love for you. Increase our love for Jesus Christ. Give us hearts that long for one thing. Cause us to set our affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Strengthen us towards that end. Uh, We are needy for you to work this in us. Lord, help us to love what you love and hate what you hate and cause us to persevere in these things until we see Christ face to face. We ask this for your glory and our joy. Amen. Do you love the saints? Do you love the church? Do you love other believers? Truly, Zealously, passionately. Okay, that's essentially the shoe leather form of the question that we've been asking ourselves. As I've had occasion to preach this past year, do you? Do I? Do we love King Jesus? To love the saints is to love Christ. So, our passage this morning in First John four, nineteen through five one is going to help us see this all important and inseparable connection. And I hope that it will encourage you in the reality or the truth that you do love King Jesus because you do love the saints. I've been the recipient of your love. So I know that this is true for most of you. When my family was sick with COVID, we had love being poured out on us. Great meals being brought uh, to our house. I almost wish I could get COVID again. But not lose my taste this time. That was the the irony of the whole thing. You know, the Armani's brought this, this pizza thing. And it was, I mean, I could tell it was awesome. So you do love the saints. So I hope to encourage you that. I hope that in asking this question, do you love the saints, that you're challenged, that you're motivated, and that you're strengthened to excel still more. That's that's my main thrust this morning. I hope to goad you into greater zeal and greater obedience this morning and then my second purpose that if by chance you're here this morning and you don't love the saints then I hope our, our time this morning will reveal to you the lost state of your soul and so that our time together in this particular text would be instrumental in bringing about your repentance now 1st John was written by the Apostle John the disciple whom Jesus loved The author of the Gospel of John, he wrote this letter somewhere near the end of the first century. We think it was probably written from Ephesus and directed to churches that are located in that region of modern-day Turkey. And from the contents of this letter, uh, we can make out that these churches were in some sort of crisis. There had been some sort of schism uh, within their fellowship, and so those who left the church were teaching heretical doctrine. Most students of the word believe these teachers were the early descendants of the Gnostics. Uh, the Gnostics believed the body or the material was wicked. Only the soul and the spirit could be pure. Uh, they also believed that salvation came through obtaining a special or hidden esoteric sort of knowledge that only a few people could, could hope to actually attain to in their life. So they were mixing Western intellectualism with Eastern mysticism. Naturally, then, they challenged the truth that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the Messiah. So they downplayed righteous living as essential to the faith, which all led to this this pride, this arrogance, and a lack of love for the saints. And this uh, situation apparently had these believers rattled to some degree. And so John writes this letter to encourage them to stand firm in the faith. But but as he seeks to encourage them, he also gives them essentially three tests that identify false teachers. False teachers deny that Jesus is the Christ. They don't obey Jesus and his teachings, and and they have no love for the saints. Those three things you see throughout this book. And uh, these three tests help identify false teachers, but at the same time, they also work towards affirming the true believer's faith and encouraging them in each one of those categories to excel still more. And so this morning, we're just going to be looking at that last test or that last encouragement. And we're going to see four reasons from 1 John 4, 19 through 5, 1 for why it is that God's people love the saints. So let's go ahead then and look at that first reason given for why Christians love each other. And the first reason is this, reactionary love. Reactionary love. Again, verse 19 says, we love because he first loved us. So we've mentioned this reactionary love uh, several times this year already when I've preached on this topic of do you love Jesus? And we've talked about how our love for Christ is a response to God's love for us in and through the gospel. Right? Our love for him is a response to Christ's love for us. So we've been talking about it, but here it is in all of its glorious boldness. We love because He first loved us. Now in context, John makes this statement in response to the truth that perfect love casts out fear. We see that in verse 18. And then earlier, a few verses even back from that in chapter 4, verse 15, he pointed out how belief in God's Son results in God abiding in them. This abiding, this reconciliation with God then comes through Jesus' death on the cross, which is the manifestation or the proof ultimately of God's love for us. We see this in chapter 4, verse 9, when John says, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. So the one who believes in this gospel reality can be assured of God's love for them. They can take it to the bank, it transcends feelings. And because God loves them so definitively, they no longer need to fear the day of judgment. So John writes in verse 18 of chapter 4, perfect love casts out fear. And it's from that line of thought then that John writes in our text, we love because he first loved us. So believers are characterized not by their fear of God and in relation to the day of judgment, but by their response to the reality that Christ died on their behalf, in their stead. True believers love God because He first loved them. So they are compelled, they are constrained by this sacrificial love of Christ, as Paul pointed out in 2 Corinthians 5.14, where he writes, for the love of Christ controls us. And there, if you remember, Paul was... was explaining to the Corinthians why he does the things that he does. Why it seems like he's out of his mind, and so on and so forth. And he's saying, I can do no other. The things that I'm doing are not the things that I thought of and said, oh, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to be persecuted for Christ. He said, these are things that we're doing. We're doing what we're doing. We're saying what we're saying because we are controlled. We are constrained by this awesome love of Christ. It controls us. And then from chapter 4, verse 11, we see that this reactionary love is also... A love for other believers. And so in reference to Christ's substitutionary atonement, John writes, Beloved, if God so loved us, if he loved us in this way, we also ought to love one another. I think scholar Alfred Plummer's comments on this text here are helpful. He writes, Love is characterized by fear when there is a doubt it will be returned. We have no fear of this since God's love was prior to ours. Affection can can easily flow from a heart filled with gratitude for God's initiation of love toward us. Yes, we love, but only because he loved us first. Remember, he sent his son to die for you. So our love for God, and in context here, other believers, is a reactionary love. It's the result of God's prior love for us. And since God's love for us was first and not a response to our love, We have no fear that his love will somehow change or run out if we screw something up or fail to love him in the way that he's worthy to be loved. He didn't love us because of something that we did. He didn't love us because our love for him was so perfect and because we did something that he liked about us that could change in the future. This This is a wonderful Christian reality. So we love him. So God's gift of his son then on our behalf is something of a love factory, right? It really is a love factory. This reality is a love-generating machine. It it generates love. Those who have been gifted with genuine faith, with, with eyes to see, they understand this, and so they respond to Christ's work on the cross. All those things that we sang about him this morning, they respond to that with love. So for example... This is all over John's letter, right? We see this love of God manifested by a love for other believers. One example of that is in chapter 3, verse 16, when John writes, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we have to lay down our lives for the brothers. So do you love King Jesus? Do you love the saints? If so, then lay down your life for them. That charge can be taken literally. I think it also... can can be taken programmatically. uh, To love Jesus is to lay down our lives for other believers. And when Christ died, when he hung on the cross, he was hanging in our place. He took upon himself uh, the penalty that our sins deserved. So we can never uh, copy Christ's love in that exact way, but perhaps a day will come when we will have the opportunity to sacrifice our very lives for the saints, literally. But the charge is also uh, programmatic. We're to lay down our lives for the saints and that we're to give our lives as just a a way of life for other believers. We're to follow in Christ's footsteps by dedicating our lives to the sacrificial service of his people. We're to sacrifice our lives for their spiritual improvement. We're to put their needs before our own. We're, We're to live for their benefit. That's to motivate our life, to guide our lives. Uh, whatever we do in this life is to be directed or geared towards that ultimate end. Uh, that's what it means to love Christ. True living then, right? True happiness in this already but not yet state of Christ's kingdom is to lay down our lives for the brethren to love God's people. And for God's true people, this is, this is just pure bliss. We've got to trust this. It's not something that we always feel. It's something that we're to know. There's no greater joy. Do you love King Jesus? Is your life dedicated to improving the spiritual growth of the saints? Do you lay down your life for the brethren? Which is why the Spirit goes on to say in verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. So the the saints love other believers because God first loved them. But now here, secondly, they love because God abides in the saints. Uh, The construction of the text here is this if-then construction. It's a conditional clause. If the first condition is met, then the second result is going to follow. So if you say, I love God, but then hate your brother, that's the first condition. If that is met, meaning if that's true, if you love God but you hate your brother, then the second part of the clause is also true, you're a liar. You don't love God. You can say that you love God till you're blue in the face. You can give that lip service. That can be your, your confession. But if you hate the brethren, the text is saying you're a liar. This describes these proto-Gnostics or whoever they were, the heretics that were causing so much grief to this first century church. John is saying that they are liars. They don't know God. They're not true believers. Despite what they say, they don't know God. And proof of this charge is that they don't love the saints. In fact, they hate the saints. Hate's a a pretty strong word. You could translate the Greek word accurately as detest. One definition of this Greek word is this, to dislike strongly with the implication of aversion and hostility. It's the opposite of love. Love or agape in the original is defined as having a warm regard for an interest in another. Cherish, have affection for. So to hate other believers is to not cherish or have affection for them. It's to not care about their well-being. It's to be hostile toward them. It's actually to seek their ill, which is what these heretics were doing by damaging these believers' faith and encouraging them away from their sincere belief and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ as Messiah. Which is something no true believer would ever do. Uh, a true believers' love for God is a love that is rooted and, and grounded in Christ and all he accomplished for them on the cross. So true believers love people toward Christ as the Messiah. In fact, true believers... Uh, one thing they do fear is that they would ever be a stumbling block in their brother or sister's life. That they would ever be the cause for someone else to, to not be zealous for Christ. That, 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 that they would ever be the reason that someone kind of uses as, as to, uh, the excuse to turn themselves away from the reality that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And then John goes on to give further reasoning for this bold and, and damning statement. This is so, he says, because he who does not love his brother whom he has seen... Cannot love God whom he has not seen. In verse 16, John has just pointed out how God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. Right? To abide means to, to remain or to stay. So ultimately, God stays, he remains in the true believer. Therefore, in, in this very real sense, to hate the true believer is to hate God's presence, which is to hate God Himself. That's one way of looking at this text. Another way is to understand that God is spirit. So he can't be seen. But when God saves a person, his spirit actually dwells in in that believer. And so the spirit recognizes and is attracted to himself and other believers because he is glorious. His person is glorious. Therefore, true believers are spiritually endeared toward one another, naturally. The ancient geneva bible notes put it this way god presetteth himself to us in them which bear his image god's people are predisposed to to love the believers god's people love him and so naturally they love the spirit that abides in these other believers Uh, that reality really blows my mind when we love other believers we're we are in a very real sense loving god And I believe that's why I love for the saints is emphasized over and over again uh, throughout the entire Bible, but we see it really hit on and emphasized in the New Testament. God has given us this very practical and tangible way to love him. We love him when we love the saints. So if a person fails to, to love in this very practical and, and tangible expression of God's person, his spirit and other believers whom they can touch, see, it and, and hear then how can they possibly love him who they cannot touch, see, and hear? And John says that they're not able to do that. They don't have the ability. It's impossible for them, which is proof that they do not themselves have the spirit of God dwelling in them. They're not God's people. So, do you love King Jesus? Do you love the saints? Does the spirit reside in your soul are you a true believer those are all essentially the same the same question and if you're in Christ you should say yes to all of them that's John's point all right he wants to encourage the saints in the reality of their faith and he wants he wants to expose liars and frauds so if you're a liar if you say you love God but then you hate his people you don't care about the church you don't care about the saints and I hope that this word wakes you up. I didn't write it. May God give you eyes to truly see the reality of your heart and so cause you to repent. It doesn't matter what, what you would say, what you would profess. It doesn't matter if you've been baptized. It doesn't matter if you, you serve the church and if you have given your right, right arm um, uh, in doing certain tasks. You know, when I say the church there, I'm not talking about other believers. I'm talking about, you know, in some sort of function or some sort of role. It none, of that, none of that really matters. If you don't love other believers, this text is saying you're not, you're not yourself a believer, and this is God's kindness, kindness to you. Uh, but this charge or this challenge is also instructive. Uh, I think of it kind of like a road map. If, if we were planning a trip together and the day of our departure arrives, it would be unkind, it would be unloving for me to jump in the driver's seat and say, okay, let's start going, and then never tell you where our destination was and how to get there. Well, commands like this in scripture, warnings like this, they function as directions. They help us know our our destination. Uh, They help us understand where where we're going. Christians are those who love the saints. That's the direction we're headed. This is vision casting. Okay, you're a Christian. What does it look like to be a Christian? Well, it looks like it means loving other believers. And so now we can start heading in, in that direction. It's very clear to us, our path moving forward. So if you're a Christian, you love the saints. So that's our general direction. But then we get some detailed directions in this in 1 John three seventeen, when John describes this love. He writes, if anyone has, you know, what does it look like? He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the love that that John is talking about. This love for the saints is a love that goes beyond mere well-wishing, right? It serves. It's not just lip service. It's action. And and Jesus sets us that example himself, as we learn in Matthew 20, 28, when he explained how he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then he went to the cross and did exactly just that. Milton Vincent wrote this excellent little booklet entitled A Gospel Primer. I, I commend it to you if you feel like you, you need encouraged to grow in your love for Jesus Christ. And, and to have kind of a, a gospel sort of meta-narrative way of looking at all of life. But he wrote this: He says, like nothing else could ever do. The gospel instills in me a heart for the downcast, the poverty-stricken and those in need of physical mercies, especially when such persons are of the household of faith. Right? To love is to serve. Do you love the saints? Do you serve the saints? Uh, Christians often talk about serving God. Y- young people, you ask them, what do you want to do with your life? And if they're zealous, they're, they're saying, I want, I want to serve God with my life, so on and so forth. And, when, and we understand what they're saying. Uh, that phrase communicates the desire to live for Christ and, and His glory, to, to live sold out for Him. But the truth is that we really, in one sense, uh, cannot serve God because to serve someone implies need, and God has no need. One of His attributes that's unique to God is that He doesn't need served. God is self-sustaining, we say. But other believers do need served. They're not self-sustaining. We aren't self-sustaining. And we can also flip this around and say that God loves us through and by other believers. When we are loved by a brother or sister in Christ, when they serve us, when they meet a need that we have, this is a manifestation, a very real manifestation of God's love for us. God is loving us through that brother or that sister in Christ. So it's right for us to regularly and often thank God for each other. We ought to be doing that. Uh, many times, a brother or sister uh, will love me, write a kind note of encouragement, something like that, or or bring us a meal, give us a gift, something like that. And I think, thank you, Lord, for loving me through this person. I knew that you loved me. Romans five eight proves to me that you love me. But you know, I just haven't been feeling it lately. But this tangible expression of their love for me is is. Is proof of that again, and it helped me feel loved. I knew that you loved me, but now I just now I'm feeling that you love me, Lord. And 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 this truth really ought to encourage us to excel still more here. I mean, what a joy it is, right? What fun it is to be instruments in our Savior's hands this way. It's a thrill to be the means by which God loves His people. And so you see, our service to each other is really, at the end of the day, our privilege. God blesses us with these opportunities to be used by him to love his people. Those for whom Christ shed his blood. They're precious. That's our privilege. This is an amazing kindness. So do you serve the saints? Do you love King Jesus? Do your actions and your words work towards improving their spiritual well-being? Are you regularly the means by which other believers are loved by God. If I sent a, micro- a microphone throughout the auditorium this morning, row by row, would anyone say that God loved them through you this past week? Maybe this past month. See, this is why it's, it's uh, so sinful to be critical or judgmental toward each other. And if we're honest, we've all done that at times, but we ought not to do that. Those attitudes tear down, they don't build up, they don't serve each other. And so we have to be extremely careful to ensure that our words and our actions and even our thoughts serve the saints, right? We we live our lives in part based on our thoughts. So that our thoughts would even serve the saints, would meet their needs. Amy Carmichael, the famous missionary to India, wrote a little booklet of poetry entitled If. Her words are are so helpful here. She writes, if I can easily discuss the shortcomings and sins of any, if I can enjoy a joke at the expense of another, if I can in any way slight another in conversation or even in thought, then I know nothing of Calvary love. do your thoughts about the saints here at Kenwood, do they build up? Are they consistent with the thoughts of one who truly loves Jesus? Do they reflect a love, a sincere love for the saints? Right, Love serves, love strengthens, love encourages, even when it has to say the hard thing. When love has to say the hard thing, it speaks the truth, as Ephesians 4 tells us, in love. It says the hard thing not because it just wants to get something off its chest, but because the hard thing is, is what is needed for that other believer. It's actually love. And so then obviously they speak it in love. They speak it for love and they speak it in love. Brothers and sisters, when we love the church, when we love the body, when we love other believers, we love God. So if you're wondering how you can love Jesus more, then love the saints more. We should be regularly asking ourselves the question, what does the body need that I can provide? And then we ought to seek to provide that specific need. Uh, To live for Christ, that phrase sort of can seem a a bit nebulous, a little bit hard for us to kind of wrap our our arms around. But to live for the spiritual improvement and well-being of other believers, particularly in our local fellowship, is very practical. It's very tangible. It's something that we can easily put our hands on. Do you, do I, do we love King Jesus? And brothers and sisters, like I mentioned at the beginning, you are doing this. Excel still more. So we love the saints because of reactionary love and because God abides in the saints. And now third, we see we love the saints because lovers of Jesus obey Jesus. Verse 21 says, And this commandment we have from him, Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Okay, so in in verse 20a, John wrote, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. And then in 20b, he gave a reason for that. Now here in verse 21, I see this as a continuation of that same flow of thought, and so is yet another reason why the one who says, I love God, but hates his brother is a liar. And the reason that he gives here, I believe, goes back to the command Jesus gave in John 13, 34. And there, if you remember, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he washed the disciples' feet and then said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then in the very next chapter in John 14, in verse 15, in that same speech, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he he says that at least three or four times in chapter 14. So believers are those who are characterized Not perfect in this, but they're characterized by obeying Jesus. They've been given a new heart that wants to obey him, and so they obey this new commandment, which is why John writes in 1 John 1:3, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Believers in general obey Jesus. They follow him. Their, their, Their face is set towards that. It's always their desire in general. They want to obey him. He charged them to love their brethren. That's what they do. Therefore, if you say that you love God, but then you go off and hate your brother, you're a liar on multiple accounts. You don't love your brother, and you're also not obeying Christ. You don't love him. So do you love King Jesus? Do you obey Jesus? Do you keep his commands? Do you love the saints as he loved the saints? Again, those are all essentially the same question. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And the law of Christ in that text is the new commandment, which reflects the reality of true salvation. So then more specifically, to fulfill the law of Christ, to obey Jesus by loving the saints, is to bear one another's burdens. Right? It's to bear their burdens. The, The Greek word for burden is a word that simply means weight. So literally, we might say, to bear another's weight. What's dragging them down? That's their burden. And then to bear, that word here means to carry or sustain a burden or a weight. So it's to bear anything that is burdensome. It's to to carry their weight. That's what it looks like to love the saints, to fulfill the law of Christ. A few years ago, someone bore my burden... And they did it so well that I thought I would share it with you uh, this morning uh, for some of the practical things this person did for me. Um, And I think that this is helpful. First, this person listened to my problem. That's the first step in bearing another's burdens. This takes time and energy. It takes time getting to know that person, having a conversation with them. If you don't know them, if you have never talked to them, you're never going to be able to bear their burden. So this this person listened to me describe my problem and was patient in this. They sought to understand my burden, my weight, what it was exactly. They asked questions to clarify what exactly was my burden. They didn't assume that they knew. Sometimes we try to bear someone's burden and we get it wrong. That's not really what the burden was. So first they listened. Second, they sought to understand me. Not everyone is equally troubled by the same burdens. Uh, one person's burden might be another person's blessing, right? Now, to bear another's burden, then, requires that we understand that person. Uh, what are their particular struggles and, and challenges? What are their particular fears? What are their particular weaknesses and, and, and temptations? And again, all this takes time. In fact, i would just submit to you, it takes gobs of time. It takes time to invest in the relationship, so that the person trusts you and feels comfortable bearing their soul to you and even telling you that, that they have a burden. But then, third, this person took my burden seriously. So they listened, they sought to understand me, they took my burden seriously. They didn't say, Ah, don't worry about it, get over it, suck it up, it's not the big of a deal. That's not bearing a burden, that's not helpful. We can't bear a person's burden if we look down on them because they're burdened. And we do this sometimes. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 ought to challenge us and encourage us there. Admonish the unruly, encourage faint-hearted, help the weak. Be patient with them all. Be patient with all believers. So we, we, we can't look down on them because they're burdened. We need to take their burden seriously. And then fourth, after all this, the person carried my burden which is to say that this person made my burden their burden. This is ultimately what it means to bear another person's burden, to own it as your own. So my problem now became their problem. And so fifth, since my problem was now that person's problem, since that person had skin in the game now, so to speak, they sought to remove or to ease the burden as best they could because they wanted to get out from underneath that burden now because it was their burden. So they started praying for me. They spent significant time thinking and covertly seeking advice and and wisdom regarding my burden. The person helped me think through my burden in light of the truth. In light of the truth of, of the situation and the truth of God's word. They sought for creative solutions and helped to apply biblical thought to that situation. The end result was that my burden was relieved and I felt the love of my heavenly father through that person's service to me by bearing my burden. So we're to do this for each other. And and we're to practice this to perfection. This is what it means to love the saints. This is what it means to love King Jesus. Paul Tripp wrote, We must love people enough to do more than expose wrong, pronounce right, and walk away. Accountability... Bearing burdens requires a willingness to roll up our sleeves and get alongside people as they fight the war between sin and righteousness. Do you love King Jesus? Whose burden are you bearing? Whose burden are you bearing? So we love the saints because of reactionary love, because God abides in the saints, And because believers obey Jesus. And now last we see that we love the saints because a love for the saints reflects and proclaims the begotten reality. It proclaims the begotten reality. Chapter 5 verse 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. This is a a profound text. We could spend uh, an hour here just on that one verse. But let me just point out a few things. Here, first, when the text says, has been born of God, the grammar is in what is called the perfect tense. This means it happened in the past, but it has ongoing effects in the present. So for us, this is important because it points out how being born again comes before belief. Second, to say that Jesus is the Christ is to say that Jesus is the long way to Messiah. The word Christ means Messiah, which is a a transliteration of the, the Hebrew word for anointed. Jesus is the anointed one of King David's line who's going to sit on, on the throne of God's kingdom forever. He is the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob and then to David and so forth. And to truly believe this is to place all of one's hopes in the promises associated with that Messiah. The promise of eternal life lived under the righteous rule of this servant king, the promise of reconciliation and the forgiveness of sins. This is what Theologians call high Christology. Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's not just wishful thinking or a fairy tale, it's reality. He is the ruler of the universe. So, the last few times I preached on this topic, we we sought to behold Christ in all of his glory. And and this morning, his glory has, has been there all along, but it's kind of been sort of underneath the surface of things until now. But here we see his glory just kind of explode onto the scene, into the text. Jesus is the Christ. He is the long-awaited Messiah. We have the right object of our worship. The eternal hopes of mankind, whether they acknowledge it or not, hinge solely on one person, on his person. He is that glorious. He is that wonderful. And we love him because of his person. But these false teachers, these heretics, they were denying that Jesus was the Christ. And so John reminds his readers that they are those who embrace the true identity of Jesus Christ. They have the right object of worship. They believe Jesus is the Messiah. They embrace his promises, which is proof, evidence, that they've been born again. Amen? Right? To to be born again literally is to be begotten. It's to be fathered anew by our Heavenly Father. It is to be re-begetted. Those who have been rebegetted believe Jesus is the Christ. And so the last thing I want to point out here then is that when we see that those who have been rebegetted or begotten by the Father love their other children and they they love their Father and they love his other children, right? If you've been born again, you love the Father and you love his other children. That's just a truism of the nature of things. We know that if a child loves and respects and reveres their earthly father then this means that they're going to love their father, their, their father's other children, right? Their siblings. Why? Because the father loves all his children, and they love him. So obviously they're going to love their father's other children. Plummer, again, is helpful here. And he gives a summary of John's logic and syllogism for me. He explains it this way. He says, first, every person who believes in the incarnation is a child of God, And every child of God loves his or her Heavenly Father. Therefore, every believer in the Incarnation loves God. So every believer in the Incarnation loves God. And every person who loves God loves the children of God. Therefore, every believer in the Incarnation loves the children of God. The bottom line is this. Those who are truly the Father's children love the Father's other children. It's simply the truth. Therefore, when these believers had observed that these heretics, these proto-gnostics who who left the fellowship, uh, did not love the saints, it was evidence that God was not their father. And that those people that left were outside the faith. You see, in salvation, God's begetting comes first. God first begets, he saves. Then his children believe Jesus is the Christ. God first begets, he saves, and then his children obey Christ's commands. God first begets, and then his children love his other children. So these are tests for false teachers and posers and encouragement for all true and saving faith. Tom Schreiner summarizes uh, the point well when he writes, the metaphor born of God indicates that new life from God secures right actions and beliefs, John does not teach that people first show love and then are born of God or that they are born of God after believing in Jesus. In every case, he uses a perfect tense so that being born of God precedes believing, loving, or overcoming the world. In this way, the power of God's grace is communicated so that every good thing performed by believers stems from God's work. All of this glorifies our king. So when we love the saints... When we love the brethren, we proclaim the reality of God's work in us. When we love the saints, we advertise to the world of the miraculous reality and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our love for each other is, is one of the primary ways that we evangelize the lost. That's why Jesus, after giving the new commandment in John 13, 34, said in verse 35, In this way Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So do you love Jesus? Have you been born again? Do you have a brotherly or or sisterly love for the saints? Do you consider the saints here at Kenwood as family? Truly. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus chastised the church in Ephesus because they had abandoned their first love. They had great theological understanding, but they had abandoned this reactionary love, and their love for the saints had cooled. So if that describes you, then heed the warning. The assumption in Revelation chapter 2 is that Christ's true sheep will hear his voice and follow him. They will heed the warning. They'll remember, repent, and do, right? They'll remember. Again, this begins by beholding Christ. Remembering begins by beholding Christ. Remember that Jesus is the Christ and that all of your future hopes hinge on his glorious person. And so turn your attention off of yourself and behold the glory of Christ, the one who made your salvation possible. Remember, he died for you. He was wounded for your transgressions. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And then remember from where you've fallen. There was a time in your Christian life when you couldn't wait to be with the saints. When, When you were Hungry for that fellowship. All week long, your eyes were kind of set for that, that Sunday gathering or whatever gathering it was. Do you remember those times? You used to serve the saints with zeal and passion and energy and fervor. And again, if your love for the saints has, has cooled, repent. Turn from the sin of familial neglect and turn to Christ. And then love. Do the work you did at first. Seek out somebody's burden and, and carry it. Don't leave a, a gathering of the saints without, without finding out what someone's burden is and then seeking to carry it. Now, be interested in the lives of the saints. Right? Get into their business. You know, if you're a, a student here and you know you're only here for a short time, don't make the mistake of, of spending four years and not getting plugged into the church and, and thinking that your school is your church or some other Christian organization is your church? Get plugged in and love the saints. Don't spend four years seeking to love and serve the Lord in your mind thinking you're doing that, but in reality, you're disobeying the Lord for four years. This is a command. You don't don't have to wait for permission. Husbands and wives bear each other's burdens. Children bear your parents' burdens. Families bear the single person's burdens. Single persons bear the family's burdens. Try to understand the particular challenges and struggles of other believers. Love the brethren. Treat them as family. And know that your greatest joy truly is in serving them. It truly is. The world will say your joy is in serving yourself, taking care of number one. But over and over in the scripture it says, loving the saints is where the joy is really located. And trust that when you love them, you're ultimately loving God. Jonathan Edwards, in his famous work, Charity and Its Fruits, wrote, A Christian should at all times keep a strong guard against everything that tends to overthrow or corrupt or undermine a spirit of love. That which hinders love to men will hinder the exercise of love to God. If love is the sum of Christianity, surely those things which overthrow love are exceedingly unbecoming to Christians. Brothers and sisters, our love is a reactionary love. We love because he first loved us. We love because God abides in the saints. We love because God's people obey Jesus. And we love because we revel in proclaiming the glory of our king's work on the cross in and through our love. So familial love is our destination. That's the vision for the Christian of life. So love should saturate our souls. It it should consume our thoughts, demand our attention our gatherings obviously should effuse them the sweet aroma of Jesus Christ and familial love. And so believers really ought to be knocking down the door of every church, particularly they ought to be knocking down the door of this church, because Christ so loves and, and fills them that they're ready to burst if they can't find a saint to love. And that should be our souls. Our souls should be bursting till we find some believer. Are you a believer? Well, yes, I am. Oh, I'm so glad I found you because I, I just want to love you. We were saved for this. If we love King Jesus, then love the saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so thankful for Christ. We're so thankful for what he accomplished on the cross on our behalf. We're thankful for his character, who he is, his person. We're thankful for all the ways that that he said we could have Loved him and proclaimed the gospel, this preeminent way is to love each other, to love the saints, to love those for whom Christ shed His blood for. Lord, help us to understand that not only is this our privilege, but this is actually where our joy lies. Help us, Lord, not to be inward focused. Help us, Lord, not to, to give that lame excuse that that we're shy, uh, that we're introverts. Lord, help us not to be robbed of this joy. Strengthen us toward this end. Cause us to excel still more. And Lord, if there are those here this morning who who in hearing this text, honestly admit in their heart that they don't have any love for the saints, that they don't truly love other believers, then Lord, I pray that they would repent, that they would turn from looking to themselves for salvation and they would look to what Christ accomplished on the cross on their behalf. Lord, we ask this for your glory and our extreme joy. Amen.